feels like this space is very full at the moment and uh, really would like just to kind of honor that together. to honor the fullness and um, the presence that's here and to honor the intensity of today also. So this evening I'd like to um, flow on a little from from Jenny's talk yesterday, at least what um, constitutes a flow in my mind. Let's see if everyone else connects the dots. If you don't, just um, consider it a completely different program today, not a, not a part two. And so I'd like to um, explore a little bit more that, that gap that Jenny spoke about, that she started um, the talk with, that Viktor Frankl quote, the gap between the stimulus and the response. That gap that can also sometimes feel like a space. an internal space, an external space that allows, first of all, for things to be as they are, allows us to be with them, allows things to change, to pass, to transform, and also allows us to respond respond in a skillful way. And maybe I'll just, we haven't mentioned this yet, um, feel totally free to take notes as much as you want, but also the recordings will be available, just so you know. So again, you, you might feel like, you know, you, you can kind of listen and take notes knowing that you'll have access to this also. Just to, to put that out there. Just been noticing that some of the pens are getting frantic, so <laughs> you don't have to, to catch every word. So that, that gap, that space, and that capacity that we have, that we're cultivating, that we're exploring to, to be in that and to create that also, to extend that, we can say. So, you know, here we are, and here is life. You know, here we are, and here life is. A life that challenges us, that is unfair, that is painful, and equally a life that can blow us away in its beauty, 
in a sense of connection that we can feel of love, of compassion. And both these sides, both these aspects are part of life. And sometimes, and I think we really all got a taste of that this afternoon, sometimes these two seeming sides or aspects of life are actually really close together. You know, they're actually one. You know, we feel pain and we feel love. We feel heartbreak and we feel beauty. We see beauty. Actually, you know, not even two sides of the same coin, you know, even closer than that. So what we're exploring here is the possibility that we have to kind of rest in that experience of, of fullness or of that closeness, that intimacy of life more. Kind of the possibility, the image that was coming to me today of kind of holding our seat on the roller coaster of life. And I hate roller coasters. I really do, just to kind of tell you how significant that image was. And hold our seat, but not in this kind of like way, but from that inner poise that we have, from that possibility of steadiness and openness that we have. to stay open and steady and let the storms of life wash over us and wash through us, pass through us. We have that possibility, we have that capacity. So finding that inner poise, finding that inner strength that is in us. Another image that was coming was, you know, the strength of bamboo is one of the strongest materials in nature and it has so much pliability and flexibility and versatility so connecting to that possibility in ourselves and one way of doing that is and it's also happening naturally is that loosening of the sense of separateness. Just like like seeing the interwoven nature of beauty and pain, of love and heartbreak. You know, also that seeing the interwoven nature of ourselves, of our experience, loosening that sense of separation, of my pain, of my imperfection of me feeling this and again I think we could really feel it in the exercise today this afternoon we could really feel it 
It was palpable in the room. They're listening to someone else's pain. Was there, a, was there an edge as we resonated with each other? If we are able to resonate, to know, to understand someone else's experience of pain, of difficulty, what does that say about our pain and our difficulty? It's, it's, a, it's a question. Like Jenny said yesterday, it's not telling you how you should feel or think or be. But invitation to question, to investigate. So if I understand, if I resonate, if your pain echoes in me, What does that mean about my pain? Do I need to keep carrying it alone? Is it possible to carry it together? Is it possible to put it down? So this is a real question of what is possible for us. What is possible for us without in any way kind of judging or not allowing where we are right now. But it's a question of possibility. What's possible? How permeable can we become so that things pass through, so that weights flow down? (coughs) Someone once asked the Dalai Lama, I've got this fleece here, I've got to tell this story. So you might not be able to see this. This says HH. So in India and in the Tibetan um, tradition, the Dalai Lama is called His Holiness. HH for short. And so one of my teachers, whenever I wear (laughs) this fleece, which I wear a lot because I haven't got a lot of fleeces, he always laughs and says, H.H., Her Holiness. (laughs) So, anyway. So someone once asked the Dalai Lama, do you ever feel anger? Do you ever feel any strong negative emotion? Guess what the Dalai Lama did? He laughed. That's what he does best. He 
He laughed and he said, of course. Of course I feel anger. Of course I feel negative emotions. And, you know, the reporter was shocked. But you're the Dalai Lama. And so he said, anger arises, sadness arises, pain arises. And he quoted the Buddha who once said about his own experience with these emotions, it's like riding on water. It arises, it comes, but it does not stick. Just as if we wrote our name in a pond or a lake. It would be there for a very brief time and then it would disappear. So the anger, the sadness, frustration arise, but they don't stay. They pass and they leave no imprint. So it's probably not where any of us are in this room. I mean, might be. I don't know you well enough. I can speak for myself. And yet it can kind of give us that sense again of what's possible. Of what's possible for a human being. Give us a sense of where we're heading. And remembering with that, that we are a work in progress. And that's great. So we're not at the stage where our emotions, our anger, our distress is like riding on water. But we're on our way. Works in progress. Can we be imperfect and see the beauty in that? One day I'll get a t-shirt made, work in progress. One of my plans. And can that be enough to know that we're in progress, that we're on the way, that we're doing the best we can with what we've got? So what can support us? What can help us to stay steady with our own imperfections and with the challenges that arise, with the storms that arise in our lives? One thing that can help is to remember this is not permanent. It's coming and going. And sometimes in conditions like we're in right now on retreat, we can really see that movement. You know, when we look closely, even at something that we 
feel that we know very well and something that can feel very um, solid. Like Jenny was speaking about in the instructions this morning about working with pain in the body. The same can be with emotions. Look at the detail. Look at the flow, look at the changeability. More intense, less intense. You know, high pitch, low pitch, loud, quiet, changes, flows. Sometimes we can see there's gaps. You know, I'm feeling really, really um, distressed right now. And even in that distress, there's little gaps, little spaces. Another kind of attitude or almost a practice we can, we can use to support us, to help us stay steady, is um, a practice I call Bear It Bhikkhu. And I'm immediately going to say what it means because it's not what it sounds like. So Bhikkhu is the Pali word for um, a monk. And... Um, Early on uh, my spiritual path, my partner and I used this phrase a lot. So we used to say to each other, Barrett Bhikkhu, quite a bit. <laughs> um, for some reason, we, had, we thought that it was a phrase the Buddha used a lot. And we understood it to mean kind of toughen up, mate. <laughs> you know, stick this out, tough it out. <laughs> Barrett. Painful, bear it. Unpleasant, bear it. Don't like it, bear it. Of course, you know, in a relationship, it could <laughs> go all kinds of ways. Um, you know, you know, stop, stop bothering me. Just bear it, Bhikkhu. That kind of stuff. So we used to use it quite a lot, and um, yeah, I'm kind of making a joke about it, but in a, in a kind of a large variety of ways. Um, but our understanding was really about this kind of, well, you've just got to kind of suck up and deal with it. Just bear it. Just bear it. Quite a few years later, um, we got a Kindle. And, um, you know, on this Kindle, we put a lot of the Buddha's suttas, discourses. And someone told us, oh, you know, one of the great things about the Kindle is that you can search on it, you know, you can put in a, a word or a phrase and the Kindle will show you everywhere it, 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 you know, it appears in what you've got on the Kindle. And so Nathan, my partner, said, ah, let's look for Barrett Bhikkhu. <laughs> and we did. And in the, I don't know how many discourses there are, but is it thousands, hundreds? Loads and loads and loads. It barely, sh it barely appears. So this thing that we thought was such a part of the Buddha's teaching was a misunderstanding. But why am, I, why am I saying this? Not just because it's a funny story. But because there is a quality that the Buddha speaks about, which I think is what we were getting confused with. Um, this quality is... Um, in Pali, is called kanti, K-H-A-N-T-I, 
it's usually translated as patience or forbearance or endurance, hence the misunderstanding. One of my favorite translations of it is actually of patient endurance, which brings in the, the gentleness in it. And this quality of, of kanti is, is part of a, of a group. As Jenny said yesterday, the Buddha taught in lists quite a lot. And it's part of a group of qualities um, that are called the paramis. And they're qualities that we're really encouraged to cultivate on the path, um, both in our formal practice and in our lives. I don't want to, I'm, I'm not going to go into them too much, just into this one. But maybe I'll just say them because they're, they're, they're very beautiful. So the, the paramis in the Theravada tradition that we practice in, there's 10 of them. Um, and their generosity, um, ethics, ethical conduct. My mind's going to go blank now. Wisdom, patience, energy, um, determination, truthfulness, which I like to think of as honesty also. Um, metta, which we've worked with a lot. Equanimity, renunciation. I've forgotten one. I didn't count. It was 10? Okay. And, you know, you don't need to memorize them. Um, they actually, they're all very interconnected, uh, but they're very, very beautiful uh, qualities of, of the human potential, of the human possibility. And in the tradition, there's a real encouragement to cultivate them. Um, the paramis, that they're sometimes translated as perfections, so they're qualities that we perfect, that we cultivate, that we develop that we nourish on the path. And they also really support our journey. They really support our understanding as we cultivate them. So this quality of, of Kanti, um, yeah, at the moment is one of my, of my personal favorites. And um, like I said, it's translated as patience and as forbearance, as patient endurance. Um, it really has, when, when we kind of explore it and feel into it, it really has the qualities of um, perspective and of spaciousness and of um, allowance in it. And, and you can really feel free to, to play with words. You know, sometimes language meets us differently, so we need to kind of find the words that resonate with us. And when we think about these qualities, what they do in us, how they affect us, um, and then we think of the effect of dukkha, of um, the kind of challenging aspects of our lives and how they affect us, it's quite interesting to, to put the two together. So as we were kind of touching on yesterday, dukkha, usually when we look at what it does is that it, it causes contraction and we contract around it. And qualities of, pati of patience, of spaciousness, of perspective, um, really naturally create space around the contraction. Does that make sense? You can kind of do like that if, or like that if, 
not completely. Yeah, they naturally bring a bit more sense of perspective. We can say that like they give us a breathing space. And so bringing that into our awareness, bringing that into the awareness of the process that we're going through. And sometimes um, with meditation practice, you know, that can really help to say, okay, actually, you know, when I come back to the breath, when I come back to um, something that's painful, just by doing that, I'm cultivating that patience, I'm cultivating that space, I'm cultivating um, some perspective, even though the experience right now might feel very tight and very closed. But just redoing that, that's part of the cultivation. So I'd like to speak a little bit about how to, kind of some things that I found helpful on how to nourish this quality of kanti, how to bring this kind of spaciousness, perspective, patience, forbearance into the practice, into our lives. So one way is um, a phrase that um, the teacher Stephen Levine, who, who died recently, um, used to use a lot. Um, he used to say, and this is like a mantra, as it is, so it is. As it is, so it is. And just feel if that connects, and, and sometimes just trying it. Either when, where something difficult is coming up, or, um, you know, we are having a difficult relationship to ourselves. You can also change it to, as I am, so I am. You know, as I am, so I am. You know, right now, the heart is closed right now. The inner critic is having a, a ball you know, right now. As I am, so I am. And then adding to that um, the impermanence aspect, which, you know, but this too is impermanent. And this too will change. This too will pass. Can I be okay with things as they are? Can I be okay with myself as I am right now? So sometimes just using these kind of questions or phrases can create even a little bit of space, a little bit of perspective, a little bit of breathing room for us. And this can allow things to move more freely, allow things to move more, f more fluidly. So if we're watching our experience, watching the changeability of it, we can see that sometimes. There's more space and there's more movement, there's more freedom, things move. When we shift our energy from, from struggling against what's there, from resisting, to more space, more allowance, more perspective. This it frees up, frees up the energy that we've been using to resist or to fight or to struggle. 
and this also frees up the energy to you know towards healing it supports us to take things less personally and again really kind of yeah sometimes really tricky to put things into language because it's so limited it supports us to take things, there's more space, it's less contracted, it's less personal, it's less mine. Sometimes remembering, as again we experienced today and yesterday, it's not, it's not just mine, it's ours. Not just mine, it's ours. And so this having more space can also allow us to notice what else is here. What else is here? You know, with the pain, with the difficulty, with the challenge, what else is here? And again, like with instructions in the meditation this morning, noticing an area of the body that feels okay or isn't painful. We can also open that way, not as a way, we're not pushing away the experience, we're just opening to what else is here. I've had this this memory coming today since this morning really strongly of um, some children that I work with. Um, this is in India, in a, in a leprosy community that I work in. I volunteer in every year and um, bring a group of volunteers there and we practice and do service work together. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a community of mostly people with leprosy, but over the years they've also... Um, created a, a school for um, hearing impaired children and a school for visually impaired children because it's a very rural area. So children that are born with um, any kind of impairment, they don't really have where to go. And because it's a rural area and people are poor, these schools are also boarding schools. So the children are, are there um, for most of the year. They stay in hostels. And one of the things that our group does is that we um, we do all kinds of activities with with the children um, and as you can imagine so during school time there's you know one school for the hearing impaired and one school for the visually impaired um, but after school we get all of them together because they live together and uh, it's quite it's, it can be quite interesting um, how to <laughs> uh, how to put those two together uh, usually doesn't work but there's one, um, one activity that's become a real tradition, uh, which we do every year and, and kind of towards the end of our stay, and that's um, making bracelets. So we bring beads and uh, kind of stretchy, stretchy nylon things so that we can make bracelets and they can have them um, together. And I'm, I'm always blown away by the fact that this one activity is something everybody loves, you know? The boys and the girls, the visually impaired and the hearing impaired, the big ones and the small ones, they all love it, you know? 
No one, like, no one's out of that. Everyone's in it, which means utter and complete chaos. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So the memory that was coming to me today was um, one of the kind of the most um, powerful things for me doing that is um, I love... Uh, doing this with with uh, the 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 young visually impaired children. Sometimes it's the first year that that I've met them, and often until this activity, we don't know to what degree they have sight. You know, because they can look completely blind, and then suddenly we do this activity, and you see someone that you thought couldn't see, and they're actually threading. You know, they're actually able to do that. I knew I was going to get carried away with this story, so you have to forgive me. What was coming to me today and what I wanted to to share um, was one thing is the joy that they have, and it can be really simple. And this year I was spending part of the time with this tiny little little girl, um, probably around six, and somewhere I don't know where she learned she knew the the English words for colors I don't know where she learned it it wasn't in in that school and we were sitting together in this in this utter chaos you know this utter chaos around us because you know there's loads of kids and of course they're fighting over you know whatever (laughs) they can and we're sitting there and you know there's a plate with lots of different beads on it and she reaches out and she picks out a bead and she holds it up to her eye and she shouts out, Blue DD, DD means elder sister, Blue DD. And then she gives it to me and I put it on her little piece of string. And then she picks up another one, Green DD. And she hands it to me and I put it on the piece of string. And there we go. And What really strikes me in all of these children, and and this is one example, is one, that there's no sense of limitation. So there's no sense of, you know, what's wrong with me? You know, that I can't thread it myself, or that I have to hold the bead up to here in order to see it. And there's also no preference. She doesn't have a preference between the blue or the green or the black or the white or the red. Other kids do, (laughs) but she doesn't. It's the joy of the seeing and the joy of the participation in the creation of that. And this is such a, it's such a, a profound teaching. You know, a lot of these children, if they were born in a different situation, not even here, you know, even if they were born in Bombay or Delhi, they would not be visually impaired. You know, they would have gotten treatment on time. And yet here they are living with this situation and somehow there's no sense of limitation it's yeah truly mind-boggling
to see. And so what is that? You know, again, it's, it's a sense of our possibility. Sense of our possibility of what's possible for us. In that experience, to feel the joy, not to feel what's lacking, but to feel what is there. So this quality of kanti has a lot of um, fortitude in it, of some kind of, of inner strength and gentleness, which this little, little thing, Nanya, really symbolizes for me. And it's really that this quality, this kind of practice that we can bring to rest into that gap between the experience and the response. Can I just stay with this as it is? Can I just stay with myself as I am? Another practice that can help us cultivate this quality of kanti, to, to cultivate this possibility of staying in that space, in that gap, is um, it's an acronym called RAIN. And some of you have probably heard about it. It's, it's quite, um, what would you call it, in vogue in Dharma teachings these days, but it's incredibly useful. And so it, it stands for, the RAIN stands for recognize, accept, investigate, and non-identify. So the first part is to recognize to acknowledge what is arising in our experience. The second part is to accept that that is what is going on right now. That is what, show, what is showing itself. Doesn't mean that that's the full stop, you know, we accept. Doesn't mean that it's okay. But we accept that that is what is present right now. The third step is to investigate, to look more deeply, to look more widely. I've been saying to look a bit more in detail. And the fourth is, it's always a bit awkward, is this non-identify or not taking this to be who I am. And I've been using this language, it's not mine or is it mine, we can ask. And each of these parts in themselves are kind of, you know, they're huge. Just recognizing. 
Just accepting this is what is right now. Just a possibility to investigate, to look at, to get to know. And then the possibility to, you know, not carry this in my being, to not make this who I am. So, you know, usually people give whole talks about this, but I've just mentioned it. <laughs> because it is really useful. Really, really useful. And we can just play, and it's easy to remember. Rain, we can just play with that when something comes up. So the last aspect of Kanti that I'd like to to mention this evening is um, forgiveness. And when I was reflecting on this, I thought, you know, I've been speaking of Kanti as that quality that creates space, that creates um, perspective, um, usually in, in the present and towards the future, and forgiveness can do that towards the past. Does that make sense? A little bit. It can create a sense of spaciousness and forgiveness towards things, um, and, sorry, spaciousness and perspective towards things that have happened and are impacting us right now. And it allows us to heal unfinished business which is often, you know, part, a big part of what we're, what we're actually dealing with, the healing of unfinished business. A metaphor that someone was using today of kind of things that we've closed up in boxes and have put somewhere. And it's really important with this aspect of forgiveness, you know, it can be quite loaded for us. And we often have this idea that forgiveness means to completely kind of wipe something away for it to not exist anymore or to um, condone. And it has more... Um, range than that. And it's a really important uh, practice for towards ourselves and towards others. I saw a, a documentary film about a, a woman who I, I also later met um, called Robbie Damelin. Um, she, she's lived in Israel for, for most of her life, originally from South Africa. And um, her son uh, was killed while he was doing his, um, his military service. And he was killed by a, by a Palestinian sniper. And her response to, to this event was um, to, to become one of the, the founders of a, of a group called the Bereaved Families Forum, 
which consists of Palestinian and Israeli families who've lost um, family members in the conflict and, you know, are working for that to not happen to anyone else. So in this documentary that I saw, which she was one of the people in this film, so she's working with this and she's, you know, her whole life is devoted to, to forgiveness, to reconcil reconciliation. And then at some point she's, she's notified by the Israeli authorities that the sniper who, who shot her son has been arrested and is now in prison. And her sense of what she should do <laughs> is that she should offer him forgiveness, that she should make contact with him. And you watch her in this intense, intense inner pain. She says, you know, this is where I should, this is the time to do what I preach. This is my test. I need to make contact. I need to forgive. She's in a lot of turmoil because she's not ready. <laughs> she's not ready. And then she finds the next best thing. <laughs> and she doesn't write a letter to the man. She writes a letter to his parents. And she speaks of her loss and she speaks of understanding theirs. And she opens that channel of communication. So this is a really important lesson for us, teaching for us about forgiveness. It doesn't always mean that we need to forgive in the way we imagine or feel the ideal is. We do what is possible. And that's always a lot. We do what is possible and also towards ourselves. Remembering that feeling pain, confusion, overwhelm, anger, whatever it is, it's not wrong. Yeah, we keep saying this, but it's kind of, keep saying it because we ourselves need to keep remembering. Yeah. It's part of being human. We can only do this at our own pace. And we can only do this in our own way. It can only take the time it's taking. I think I mentioned 
At some point, a, a, a very close friend of mine who, when we were 14, um, had an accident and um, ended up with a spinal cord injury, paralyzed from the chest down, and then spent about nine or 10 months in rehab. And when he came out of hospital, out of rehab, he, just, he was just going for it. He was living. You know, we were a bunch of crazy teenagers, and he was there with us in the wheelchair. And about eight years afterwards, when he was already, when we were in, tw- in our 20s, he suddenly realized that it was time to grieve. that he had been so intent on living, going forward, doing, being in that way, that he, he hadn't grieved yet. And so then he grieved. And it took a while. And at the end of that process, he said, if I could go back and change that moment when I jumped into a shallow, the shallow end of a swimming pool. I don't think I would do it. Because if I did, I wouldn't be who I am right now. And so sometimes, you know, these events, these things that happen, these storms that arise, with time, they become part of who we are. The dark and difficult and painful becomes part of the beautiful, the diverse becomes part of our gift to the world. Let's just have a a quiet moment together. just felt like just having a moment to to kind of settle back and also um, there is a little time if there's any questions or, or comments or reflections from anyone it's it's welcome
reflection is always perfect thing, perfect because it's absolutely. And I've probably got pain for the last year, you know, this is etc. And something that keeps occurring to me is I feel like I'm accessing the form of pain that everyone accesses. And it's one of the most lonely and one of the most real things ever. And um, I thought of that when you were talking about, um, it's not even two sides of the same coin, it's part of the same place. Called Encounter Point. Yeah. It's made by a group called Just Vision. Beautiful. Did everyone hear that at the end? So um, I'll just repeat, I think, because I, I have the microphone. Um, Juliet was saying that she was listening to, um, to Tara Brack speaking recently about RAIN, this acronym that I was using. And she had changed um, the N from non-identify to nour nourishing compassion. Nourish with compassion. And just the reflection on that. Um, you know, another way of saying that same thing, especially on a day that we've been practicing compassion. Yeah. I was wondering, um, with pain and illness, there's the, your own reaction to it that you have to explore, and then there's other people's reaction around you to it that you also witness. And, mm. and I sometimes wonder, I think it, it's um, it's 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 specific to the situation of living with with illness or with loss, and it's also generally that sense that we sometimes get of how to you know how to help 
people, but the difference is that in this case, it's it's kind of the energy is focused on you, also. Um, I think one is is really feeling that intention, that wish. To to help. Um, compassion practice in in this way can can also help, and also for yourself, and it's a real balance, um, of of negotiating or making space both for your own needs in there and and for others. And, and sometimes it also is the trust, you know, that kind of staying authentic, staying loyal, staying with what you need is, um, is a compassionate place also, if that makes sense. I know this is a really brief response to what is a really big issue. Um, you can see how many people are nodding in the room. It's a really big issue for, for a lot of us. And it's, um, it's, um, it's one of those interesting areas also when, you know, when, when there's something like illness or, um, or bereavement that it, it, to a sense, it becomes a public domain, <laughs> you know maybe more than other things. And it's also interesting to, to experience that and to explore that. And I think when there's close relationships, there's really a place also to, to explore that together and to have some kind of really um, held communication together and sometimes use some of the, the formats that we're using here, you know, of just having speaker and listener can come up with questions together and then just let that different way of communication work through stuff um, when, when there's a closeness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like a, a like, yeah, I feel like a very brief, I don't know, Jenny, if you've got Yeah, definitely. I just remember when I worked in um, cancer services, so I can think of several couples where it kind of came up, I mean, it was, this was in close, intimate relationships, but where the person, the partner, the carer, or the, or the partner would say, you know, this is the person, if I have any issues, I would confide in this person, but they can't be the person I confide in about how I deal with their illness. It doesn't, or, or the partner would say, you, I can't be the person who comforts you about dealing with me. And, you know, it, this was in a setting where we had other people who the, people could speak to but sometimes I think it's just really okay to say to somebody you know I really appreciate your compassion and sympathy but don't you can't cry on my shoulder about me you know and and just really invite is there someone else they could they could talk to and confide in thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate